Good morning, and the conversation begins this very hot WIP day here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's hot, and it's going to get hotter. Hotter in the temperature and hotter on the conversation here on 94 WIP. And when we come back in just a bit with hackings in the computer, whether it's credit card data being taken or whether it's Russia hacking our elections, Cybersecurity has become more important than ever. Cybersecurity in business and cybersecurity in our home. And that's what we're going to talk about this next hour. Cybersecurity and a whole lot more. My name's Peter Solomon, WIP Radio, 94 WIP, the WIP time, 6.01. And we're back. It's <coughs> Conversation, 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Computer hacks everywhere. Is our data safe, whether it's our data at home or our data in business? Well, we're going to ask that question and a whole lot more for my guest this morning. My guest, Chris Moskovitz, and if I've murdered your name, I apologize, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. It's Chris Moskovitis. Moskovitis. Chris Moskovitis, cybersecurity expert, author of the new book, Cybersecurity, cybersecurity Program Development for Business. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How safe is our data? Our data is not safe at all. We're not taking good care of our data. We're not taking care of our house or our businesses. And for that matter, we're not taking care of our institutions. So we're in trouble. Are we stupid? No, we're not stupid. We're not not paying attention. We're not connecting the fact that cybersecurity is a risk exercise as opposed to thinking that cybersecurity is somehow related to information technology. And and whenever we're dealing with information technology and cybersecurity, you know, we we draw just a blank stare because it's like a foreign language and people don't want to engage with it. So it's not stupidity. It's it's more of a denial and, and unwillingness to get engaged with having these kind of difficult conversations. Has it gotten any better, though, since the Russian hacking of our election or the hacking of that whole department store conglomerate that had their data stolen? Well, I, I think that what has gotten better is awareness. We, we're starting to recognize that this is a very serious issue, and it is pervasive, and it goes all the way from the highest levels of governmental institutions all the way down to our personal data. So, so awareness helps. Um, what I'd like to, to um, I, I, you know, to provide an analogy as to where we are with cybersecurity, we're in the same place we were with safety belts in the 1970s. If you remember, in the 1970s, the safety belts were mandated on all cars, and there was outrage, outrage, I say. The car manufacturers were like, oh, my God, we're going to go broke. The cars are going to be so expensive. Nobody will be able to afford cars. And, of course, there was the other side that said, well, I have the absolute right to fly through the windshield if I want to, damn it. Uh, this is pretty much where we are with cybersecurity. There, there's been some uh, mandated regulations for, for larger institutions and financial institutions, but essentially people are like, eh, you know, I haven't been hacked. Why do I need to care about this and so on and so forth? Just like today, we don't even consider getting into a car without snapping that belt on. We need to be in the same place with cybersecurity. I haven't been hacked, but I have. As one example, I was a victim of ransomware. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. And, and yes, that's, that's part of the issue. The, the most recent Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, which is just a, a, an incredible piece of research work, um, the time to compromise on an average computer is in seconds. The time to exfiltration, which is when they steal your data, is in days. But the time to discover and contain this is measured in months. 
So it is entirely likely that you've been hacked, especially if you are a small business, that you've been hacked and you have no idea that that's what's going on. How can you be hacked, though, and not know? Well, uh, a, a hacker compromises a system, gets in, and then establishes ownership of that system, and then uses the system for a variety of, of, of purposes. It may very well be data exfiltration, stealing your intellectual property, but also very frequently is establishing a foothold in a system so they can use your system to attack a bigger target. You know, speaking of target... Uh, that's exactly what happened with the famous credit card theft at the Target department stores. They were compromised through the systems of one of their vendors. Hmm. How do they know how to do it, though? Well, you—that's that, it's it's. It's a very interesting question, and the reason they know how to do it is because they do a lot of intelligence gathering ahead of time. They're playing offense. We're playing defense. And, and by definition, that puts us at a disadvantage. We have to think of all of the ways an attacker is going to come at us, build bridges and moats and fill them with crocodiles and have, like, NAFTA pitch ready to fall on the enemy and so on and so forth. While the enemy is just sitting on top of the hill looking at us and saying, hmm, how do I get into this castle? Maybe if I go around the other way, maybe if I pay somebody off to open the side door, maybe I'll use a hot air balloon. They have all the time in the world and they can do all sorts of investigations around the target and then attack whenever whenever they want. What I find interesting, though, is systems in America get hacked by hackers in Europe or Russia. How does that happen? Well, uh, first of all, they get, they get hacked from hackers all over the world, and that's one of the main issues in, uh, in cyber warfare and cyber crime. There is a very, very low barrier to entry. You can be anywhere in the world and access any other place in the world. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that right now, if we're talking about cybercrime, cybercrime is extraordinarily well organized. There's cells upon cells. There's, there's hacker universities. There's support groups for hackers themselves to ask questions and escalate a hacking question to, to more senior hackers in order to get to your organization. When we're talking about cybercrime, the reason why it's done, and it's done from all sorts of countries that you mentioned, is that there is no prosecution. So you can be in any of those exciting places around the world and hack a bank in the United States, and there will be no prosecution. So that's why you do it. You do it for two reasons. One, that's where the money is, and two, nobody's going to catch you. So organized crime has moved into the cyberspace. When you're talking about Russia attacking our elections and other nation states, that is, that is straight out an act of cyber warfare and cyber sabotage. And that's excluding, of course, the in-between stages, which is you have your cyber hacktivists, you have cyber terrorists, and you have all sorts of other people that want to, to create havoc for their own agendas. How, though, do they get in? I mean, I, st- I still don't understand how they get in. Well, they get in because they exploit vulnerabilities on the system. Uh, one of the things that technology has done for us is it's made us a little bit blind as to the complexity of the systems involved. So, for example, uh, you and I and everybody else we know are walking around the streets of Philadelphia this morning with a, with a cell phone in their pocket that has much more computing power and much more complexity than the computers that put uh, the astronauts up on the moon. 
but we, we're not connected with that reality. These systems are extraordinarily complex. There is millions and millions of lines of software code that are running this complicated hardware. And by design, almost, it is sort of, it's, it's, it's a side effect of this complexity that there are vulnerabilities in these systems. These vulnerabilities get exploited. I look at the system, I, and then some of these vulnerabilities, by the way, and the majority of them are published. So I first of all look at the system for published vulnerabilities and see if I can get in that way. And I frequently do. The vast majority of published vulnerabilities are not taken care of, some for legitimate reasons and some for not so legitimate reasons. Um, the not so legitimate reasons involve ignorance, involve, oh, I don't have the time to patch my system, or straight up, people are not following up on it. They don't have a cybersecurity program. The more legitimate reasons are, I'm a business, yes, I know my server has a vulnerability and, and the vendor has issued a security patch, but if I apply the security patch, the mission-critical application that I have that's running my business for the past you know, 15 years is going to break. So I can't apply this patch. So what I need to do now is I need to take sort of kind of expensive measures to protect around it until I figure it out. So the, so the matter is complex. There is then no such thing as a safe system. No, there is no such thing as a safe system the same way that there is never, that the risk can never be zero. Um, you know, an example that I use, uh, I use when I speak to boards or executives is consider um, going out at night with your friends at a restaurant, and it is, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you have finished a wonderful evening with your friends, you step out of the restaurant, and you arrive at the corner, and you look left, and the light is against you, the light's red, and you look left, and you look right, and there is one car down the block coming. What do you do? Do you cross the street, or you don't cross the street? The majority of people say, of course I cross the street. The car is down the block, it's 11 o'clock at night, no problem. And then I say, okay, consider the same exact scenario, only this time you happen to have a stroller with your baby in it. Do you cross the street or don't you cross the street? And the majority of people say, no, I'm not going to cross the street. The, both cases, we've made a risk decision. In one, the first case, it, that risk was acceptable for us, and we crossed the street. The second case, that risk was not acceptable for us, and we didn't cross the street. The situation didn't change our decision against the same risk did. Didn't, though, people like Target, people like the government, people like state election systems make those decisions? Did they make those decisions about risk, or did they say, ah, what the heck? No, I, I you know, uh, there's cases that involve criminal negligence, to be sure, in the sense that uh, there were known vulnerabilities, they should have known better, they should have taken care of their systems better, and they are criminally negligent for not doing so. And incidentally, uh, we all take, we as citizens, and certainly regulators take a very dim view of a company that has uh, private citizen data or health data or financial data, and nobody's taking care of, and nobody's instituting a cybersecurity program against it. That is not trivial, and people take a very, very dim view, and there is fines and potential criminal prosecution. Um, 
And then there is the other case of straight-up ignorance. I'm a small or a mid-sized business. I only have X number of resources. They're involved in IT, and I make and I make the very big mistake of thinking that cybersecurity has to do with information technology. Again, it doesn't. Information technology, by its nature, is something that creates value every day. That's its job. Information technology creates value. Cybersecurity protects value. Those are two parallel tracks that your train is running on. They can't report to one another because it's a conflict of interest. So these things need to be separate. Most small businesses, most mid-sized businesses, and several big businesses don't even have the right governance in place to start understanding and managing that kind of risk. And, and we need to make very serious and rapid efforts to correct this. Is the problem then we've made the whole process of computers and cybersecurity so complex that the average businessman, the average board chairperson just doesn't understand it? Well, uh, I'd like to turn your question around in a different way. Uh, A car in the 1960s uh, would be on your driveway and you could change the oil and you can diagnose its problems and change the spark plugs and do this, that, and the other. A car in 2018, you open up the hood and you see a bunch of wires and a big black cover that you don't even have the right tool to unscrew from its hinges. Uh, Did we create a car that we cannot repair? The answer is, yeah, we created a car that you can't repair because the car is now far more complex and it's smart and it's this, that, and the other. Uh, technology and progress and science inexorably moves forward every single day. We can't stop progress in order to try to figure out, oh, gee whiz, what's going on? We are responsible for the progress and the technology that we create, just as we are responsible in understanding that. So we need to develop a certain level of awareness. We need to build a certain vocabulary so our 2018 car, when it goes to the mechanic, we can actually have a meaningful conversation with that mechanic and and understand what the mechanic is going to do to the car. I don't have an expectation that any business executive or a board member or or anybody else is going to really understand and get into the weeds of cybersecurity, the technical aspects of it, or in some cases, even the governance aspects of it. But I do have an expectation, and all of us need to have the expectation of understanding what the topic is in plain business language and be able to complete a handshake with an expert. It is simply inexcusable that you are a board member or a C-level executive in your own business and you are scared of the topic and you don't want to go near it. It is equally inexcusable to be an elected representative in this country at any level of government and not understand technology, not understand the risks associated with cybersecurity, and be able to hold meaningful conversation, especially if you're in a position where you're passing legislation on this thing. It, it It was embarrassing to watch the hearings with Zuckerberg on Washington and having senators asking questions that were like made you cringe if you had if you were a 10 year old on a computer you would be going oh my god what are they asking there's no excuse for this but they did it anyway they did it anyway and we need to take care of this we need to take care of this by insisting that everybody gets a, a, a level of understanding on cybersecurity and information technology so that they can be informed 
and partner effectively with experts. Again, I try to use examples to make things understood in, in a simpler way. It, just as you need to have a baseline understanding of, of healthcare and medicine to have a meaningful conversation with your doctor, you need to have a baseline understanding of information technology and cybersecurity, two different things, in order to have a meaningful conversation with the professionals that you may need in order to take care of your own business. Or at least know what you don't know and know to ask somebody if something happens that you're not sure about. That's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. Because I know on my home computer, I'm constantly getting messages that are suspicious to me. And yes, they are. Um, yes, they are. And, and I apologize for, for interrupting you. I think you, you hit on something that is uh, a particular pet peeve of mine. Um, you have been a victim of ransomware. You mentioned it earlier, and that has sensitized you now a great deal. And that, that's, that's wonderful that you have. But, but essentially, I'd like to use the line from the X-Files, trust no one especially when it comes into social engineering and phishing, which is methods by which people pretend to be somebody else and then send you an email and ask you to click something or open a file. Trust no one. If you see such an email, if you see a message coming up on your computer saying, call Microsoft because your computer is a threat and you need to call Bill Gates personally, he's waiting for you on the other line, call this number, you need to be extraordinarily suspicious and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. I think Bill is busy this week. Maybe I shouldn't be calling this number. Maybe I should be calling somebody else and see how this thing got compromised. Or if you get a message, as I've gotten frequently, a relative sent you an email. You right. know the relative's name, but the relative's email address that comes with the email makes no sense. That's right. You call the relative up. Just call the relative up. Pick up the phone. It's amazing what the simple phone conversation will do. And again, we, we shouldn't be trivializing this. The, things can get extremely complicated when it comes into social engineering. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. A, a typical example is what happens um, in mid-sized companies where they have a decent accounts payable department. Let's say that you have an accounts payable department that has like a dozen people in it. Um, there is a process and a workflow whereby a vendor gets paid. There is an invoice, it comes in, it gets approved, then a check gets cut, it gets signed, and so on and so forth, right? right. Now, very frequently, in the, in, in the first tier of social engineering on that is they, the, the hacker would identify the accounts payable clerk responsible for you know, issuing these checks, and then they would send a fake email pretending to be from the CEO and saying, um, this is Mary, I, you know, the CEO, and uh, we have a mission-critical deal going on, and such and such law firm needs to be paid $20,000 by wire today. Make sure that this happens. If you are a, an accounts payable employee in a company that has 500 people and you don't have a direct line or access to the CEO, you, you're like, oh, my God, you know, I, I need to do something about this. And very frequently and certainly initially, they would execute that kind of a wire. So then what companies did, and they, they, they obviously got smart to this after there were several hacks like that, and said, okay, we're going to institute a process now that says if you get an email from anybody in the C-suite saying such and such is happening and I need a wire, <clears throat> you need to confirm this with the CFO, and the CFO has to sign off on it in addition to the other executive making the request. Mm, good plan, good plan. So now what I do is I monitor your Facebook or I monitor your LinkedIn, and then I know when the CFO is on vacation. Then I fire off an email saying, hi, 
Um, this is Mary, the CEO. We have a situation. We, it's a mission-critical deal. It needs to go down. We need $20,000 worth of a wire to go at such and such a location. And oh, by the way, I know that Ellen is not here today because she's on vacation, and I hereby authorize you to bypass the rule that we have in place, so please go ahead. Hmm. Again, depending on the culture, depending on the cybersecurity awareness of the organization, these kinds of things, as silly as they may sound at 6.30 in the morning, uh, they can be quite terrifying to an employee whose job is on the line and depending on how the email is phrased, and sometimes they fall victim to, to things like that. Absolutely. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking cybersecurity and a whole lot more with cybersecurity expert Chris Moskovitz. Yep, Chris Moskovitz. Moskovitz, author of the new book, Cybersecurity Program Development for Business. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back. It's 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. It's Conversation. Our conversation this morning with cybersecurity expert, cybersecurity expert Chris Moscovides, his new book, Cybersecurity Program Development for Business. All right, Chris, so far we've talked about business, but can we narrow it down and talk about cybersecurity for home? Sure. Uh, the, the, the differences actually are, are not as uh, profound as you would think. It's just a question of scale, right? Because what, what changes when you're talking about cybersecurity is essentially the threat surface. When you are at home and you're just dealing with one or, or, or just a few machines, you need to protect those assets. And there are some very simple things that you need to do, uh, one of which, of course, we discussed already, which means being cyber aware, making sure that you're, you're not trusting things. But the other things that you need to do, certainly, is you need to start protecting your environment by taking a few very simple steps, starting with your network, because you have a network at home. So you need to secure your network. You need to make sure that data flowing over your network is encrypted. So that's a first good step. The second step, and that's something that we recommend across the board, not just to individuals but to businesses as well, is use two-factor authentication. So two-factor authentication is the kind of authentication frequently used by banks these days. So if you're banking, if you have an online account with your bank, typically you have to supply credentials like a username and password, and then it says, well, that's all fine and good, but I'm also going to text you a number in order for you to to get access to your account. That's two-factor authentication. Our advice is make absolutely sure that you use two-factor authentication across the board to as many places as possible. Uh, The third piece of advice is obviously, obviously change all the passwords of both equipment and services that you use from defaults. Use a password that's meaningful and complex to you. People seem to be under the impression that you need to use a gook password with like 25 different characters, uppercase and lowercase and symbols and numbers that are unpronounceable. That's not the case. It's, it's, certainly that's not the case anymore. You can pick a, a set of sentences that are meaningful to you and only you would know. Um, you know, things like, um, when I was 12, I lived on Adam Street, 2012. So if you use that sentence and capitalize the first letter of every word, that's the thing that you need to remember. And if you have five sentences like that and you distribute them across most of the services that you're using, plus two-factor authentication, you just got a real great head start in protecting your own personal environment. 
I have probably, what you're probably going to say is a bad habit. I use the same password for all different things. You're right. I would say that it is a bad habit. <laughs> and I think you should change it. Okay. Um, so, look, the reason you should change it is uh, twofold. In, in, in my opinion, you should change it because if your password is compromised in any way and it gets stolen, then with that same password, I have access to all of your services. If that's a risk that you're willing to accept, then don't change it. Uh, but I suspect that it's not a risk that you're willing to accept. And in that case, I recommend that you do change it based on the, on the guidelines we spoke just a, a second ago. Okay. The other question I have is there are all kinds of antivirus software because people basically get in with a virus, don't they? Well, uh, let's, say that they, let's say that they do. Uh, uh, your point is well taken. There is a lot of antivirus and anti-malware software, and to one degree or another, they're all decent products. Um, a, a couple of things to remember. Uh, the first is, uh, much like the, the flu virus, much like the, the vaccine that we all use every year against the flu. It represents an inoculation on last year's virus. So if this year's virus is similar, then we're in good shape because our body has built the immune system against it. Nevertheless, if the virus that is coming this year is very, very different than the virus that was last year, then we're going to get sick. We're going to catch the flu. The same thing applies with these kinds of antivirus and anti-malware systems that are out there, especially the, 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 the cheaper ones and most certainly the free ones. They are signature-based kind of systems, and they, they have a big database of known viruses, and if any of them comes your way, they stop it. But if a new virus is developed and their database is not updated, you know, in time, then this virus is going to go through. Okay, but are some more trustworthy than others? I think about the controversy for a while about Kaspersky's. Right, the the Kaspersky product is is a very good product. The the controversy surrounding Kaspersky has to do with uh, allegations that Kaspersky is uh, in collusion with the Russian secret service and so on and so forth. Um, and you know that that's a judgment that you need to make. C certainly, as I understand it right now, and and I'm I'm not entirely sure if this has changed or not, but I do believe that um, several state and federal institutions are not using the product out of fear of potential compromise. Uh, but there are many, many vendors uh, that that are that are excellent, and there is many review sites out there. Um, computer sites that that you can go and um, and pick the one that's uh, best suited for you. So while you're not recommending a specific um, product, you're telling out. You're, are you telling us so? The ones you pay for are better than the ones that are free. Uh, you always get what you pay for, and that's something that's important for you to, to to recognize. And I think we all instinctively recognize that. And and I think that you're bringing up. Um, Another very, very interesting point, that there is, there is so many free services out there. There's free email services. There is free social networks. There is free, 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 all sorts of services that are very, very complex, and they enrich our life daily. Well, why are they free? They're not free because they're giving it to you because of your beautiful eyes. They're free because they are tracking your behavior. They are tracking your data, and all of this information is sold upstream. 
When I deliver cybersecurity awareness training, there is one of the slides that I use is a slide of two beautiful little piggies in a beautiful little barn, and one little piggy is turning to the other one and says, isn't this an incredible barn? Look how beautiful it is, and the light is streaming in, and everything is clean and wonderful, and the food is free. You're right. The food is free, and when the food is free, you're on the menu. So you need to recognize that all of the services that are free that you are using, they're using your data, and they're using your actions, and they're tracking your behavior, and they're selling it to marketers and data integrators, aggregators, and all sorts of people that are willing to buy this kind of information. So if you're okay with that, that's fine, and you certainly should be aware of it. But that's what's happening with free. There is nothing free in life. And trust me, technology, which is very expensive to maintain and very expensive to support, nobody is giving these extraordinary services for free just because they like you. Then how did come to be such a big surprise, the Facebook scandal? Uh, well, was it a big surprise? I think, I, I, think I, I, I think we would like, you know, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of the movie Casablanca. Uh, it's outrageous, outrageous. There's gambling going on. Oh, here's your profits on the side. But I, I don't think it was that big of a surprise. We would like to pretend that it was a surprise because maybe it makes us feel better. But seriously, we're all adults here. Do you really think that you have been using a platform of a complex system for free for years because why? Mark Zuckerberg likes you? Really? You're surprised about that? I think a lot of people were. Maybe not the big boys, but us little consumers. Well, um, okay. Uh, then then uh, uh, this surprise was a, an educational uh, opportunity for all of us to recognize what it is that we're dealing with. I, I still don't see millions and millions and millions of consumers leaving Facebook or any of the other f uh, free services. So we are accepting that risk, and that's fine. I'm on Facebook too. I'm not willing to leave that service because I enjoy, I get a lot out of it. But I am fully aware of what that means and what that does to my data. It makes your data vulnerable. It makes my data publicly available, which changes my profile of privacy. It changes what privacy means to me and what it means to my friends. So in, in my particular case, I have uh, multiple Facebook accounts. I have a public Facebook account uh, under Chris Moscovides. Um, so people can interact with me publicly uh, as, a, as a professional. But I also have a quote-unquote private Facebook account with a totally different name that is completely locked down. The privacy settings are as extreme as you can get. You, can, you cannot friend me unless I know you and so on and so forth. And that's only there for my friends. And there I talk about more personal things. I mean, it's, it's, it's a connection between friends as opposed to a connection between, you know, a professional or public audience. And that is something that has worked for me in that network. I have accepted that risk. I'm also not naive not to realize that, of course, Facebook as an organization knows of these two profiles belonging to the same person and they are linked. Of course they do. And, and that's something that I, I have accepted. But I at least have introduced a, a, a control that makes me feel better as opposed to, uh, you know, really being a, 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 a very serious, meaningful control. 
it makes me feel better in terms of isolating my private life to only those that uh, I care to share it versus the public. Then the call that comes from many people in Congress, for example, that Facebook needs to be punished for what they've done is a naive call. I believe that it is a naive call. The, the, the question that uh, Congress needs to be asking is, is something like Facebook and is the mother of privacy something that we need to look at as a society and have a debate on? Um, certainly there are debates like this that we have had as a people throughout our history. And again, going back to the safety belt issue, the safety belt issue is, is something that was regulated. There is regulation right now certainly in Europe called GDPR, and I'm sure many people have seen all of these emails coming from all these free services saying we have updated our, um, uh, our, our usage guidelines and so on and so forth. This is all in response to GDPR in Europe which is the general data protection regulation from Europe that is very specific and very restrictive as to what it is that you can do with uh, people's data. Uh, these kinds of regulations uh, will filter to the United States as well, and they will become law at different states, and eventually, um, who knows, they, they may become federal law. Uh, at the same time, there is certainly federal regulations regarding um, financial institutions in, in New York State. Uh, the Department of Finance, uh, Financial Services has some uh, excellent, excellent um, cybersecurity regulations. So, so there, is a, there is certainly a place for regulation. Um, moreover, what I think, and I, and I wrote an editorial a, a few months ago titled Clear and Present Danger, there is a place for international treaties. Um, you know, after the Second World War, everybody was in obviously horrific shock on, on, on the massacres that happened at every level. And we as, as societies got together and said, okay, enough, hold on. We need to create a framework and we need to create treaties that we don't blow each other up. We need to make sure that there is a red phone between the United States and Russia, and if there is an accident, we can pick up the phone and call each other and say, hey, you know, oops, don't do this and so on and so forth. We created frameworks and treaties to protect against the use of, of weapons of, of mass destruction. We are not doing anything like this in cyber warfare, nothing. And there are many reasons for it, one of which is the fact that it's a little bit of the wild, wild west, and we all want to explore what it is that we can do in the wild, wild west, and we're not ready to start putting you know, frameworks regulating this just yet. But, but this, is, this is naive. Cyber warfare is, is very, very dangerous. It could very easily lead to loss of life and massive casualties if we start talking about taking things down like air traffic control, the power grid, uh, and, you know, health systems. This, this can take – the, the impact of such a hack would be significant, and many people could die from it. So one of the things that the editorial and I advocate is we as, a, we as a society of civilized people, we need to get together and create treaties and frameworks that essentially, and, and, and I'm, being, I'm using broad strokes here, essentially puts limits to, what, to cyber warfare and says and a, a cyber warfare attack to one country is an attack to us all, and you're not going to do that. That doesn't mean we're not going to spy on one another. That doesn't mean we're not going to be like, trying to, to find vulnerabilities one nation to another. This is the, the, the cat and mouse game we've been playing as humans since when we left the caves. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that we put 
place, you know, frameworks in place that give notice to all of us that this is not okay, and we need to pay very close attention to that. Otherwise, horrific things will happen against uh, grids, against you know, life-dependent utilities, and, and also against our democracy. It's, it's not okay that you have a nation-state attacking the democratic institutions of any other nation-state. That's not okay. That's not something that can happen. This is not spying. This is not part of the quote-unquote normal game. Certainly. Um, and you're listening to Conversation. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. It's Conversation into the home stretch about cybersecurity and a whole lot more with my guest, Chris Moscovides, author of Cybersecurity Program Development for Business. My name's Peter Solomon. Chris, you said something earlier that I want to pick back up on, and that is why isn't there consequences for when you get caught hacking? Um, there are consequences when you get hacking, especially in the United States. You go to jail. Um, so, uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, in, in my book, uh, a, a very, very famous hacker wrote the foreword, uh, Sabu, and Sabu was arrested, and then he um, he went to jail. So, so there are consequences if you are indeed arrested. Uh, what appears to be uh, that there are no consequences now when you when you're being hacked it is because hackers originate in countries where uh, there is no enforcement of laws a uh, or b there are no extradition treaties or even c uh, secretly nudge nudge wink wink the hackers that are attacking us are doing so with the blessing of the local authorities so that's why there are no consequences to hacking. Uh, and those news get worse because right now, uh, hacking, you, you, you uh, me, anyone can, can easily go into the dark web and get yourself uh, cyber hacking as a service. You, do, you don't have to be a hacker. If you want to make somebody's life miserable, you can go to the dark web and, and, and hire cyber hacking as a service for a few hundred dollars and make somebody's life truly miserable. And that's just a horrible prospect, but you can do that now. What do you think then of the trend that we see on television, all these adventure shows, spy shows, crime shows, where there's a whole lot of hacking going on? Um, they're fun to watch. I, I enjoy them a, a great deal, but they are a little bit of worth of science fiction. And, and remember, it, certainly in the United States right now, the, the current state of law in the United States is of, of counter-offensive hacking is illegal. So if you're a company that you have your own team of hackers wo working to protect you and, and you find yourself under attack by some hacking group, um, according to current accepted law, uh, you need to do everything that you need to do to protect your business, you need to protect your assets, but you cannot go and launch an attack against them. That's out of the question. Uh, that's illegal. Uh, now, that's not to suggest that our military services and our, uh, and our clandestine services are not on top of this. Uh, they are. As a matter of fact, uh, our military services and, and certainly uh, the NSA and the CIA have some of the best talent anywhere in the world, and they are way ahead in the game in terms of both protecting us and in making sure that um, you know our offensive capabilities are as best as they can be. And I leave it to them to exercise their best judgment and their incredible skills in, in, in protecting us. Who'd you write the book for? I mean, you need a degree 
in computers and program writing to work with the book? No, not at all. The, 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 the book is a business book. It is a book directed for uh, anyone that needs to understand the subject and in, in plain business language so that they can understand what's going on. Uh, the book is, uh, is even humorous, and, and I'm very, very flattered that it has received such wonderful reviews. So it's, so it's a funny book. It's, it's a book that's very, very easy to read, but it's also a comprehensive book on the subject, and it gives you everything that you need to know in order for you to, A, manage your own cybersecurity program in terms of understanding what it is that you have to do. You have to identify the assets that you need to protect. You need to, to understand where the threats are coming from. And then you, under, you need to understand concepts like controls and defense in depth and what does that mean and how you are going to protect your assets. And then eventually it also helps you understand that no matter how well you protect your business, there will be an incident. So what is it that you need to do to take care of the incident? Um, so that's what the book walks you through, and depending on the size of your business and the scope of work that you need to do to protect your business, it certainly enables you to successfully complete a handshake with a professional that can get down into the nitty-gritty, into the technical details that, that you don't need to know um, in order to protect the business correctly. So it is a business book. It is a management book. Uh, it is a fun book, and everybody that has certainly um, read it so far has been very, very generous with their praise in, in saying how useful it is. Do you foresee a day when there will be out-and-out -out cyber warfare? Uh, I dread the day where it will be out-and-out -out cyber warfare. Yes, you're right. It is my worst fear because that will result in, in loss of life, and that's something that keeps me up at night. So what do we do? Well... We talk about it. We, we become aware. We, uh, we talk about it at every level. We talk about it as uh, individual citizens. We talk about it as businesses. And we certainly need to talk about it within our own governments at every level. And then we need to talk about it at international forums and start laying down the, the frameworks I mentioned earlier to protect the world from uh, runaway cyber attacks. Do you see signs that the current administration in Washington is doing what they need to do? No. Okay, that's fairly definite. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. That's, again, are they being stupid or they just don't want to play? Uh, I can't comment on uh, their level of intellectual prowess. I, I think that I will leave that to all of us make our own judgments. Um, certainly when it comes to policies of science and technology, what we have seen from the current administration is a very negative stance. There was even reports in the last few months of eliminating outright the cybersecurity advisor of the president. So go from there. Okay. Do you have a website, sir? Yes. The website for the book is cybersecurity dash for-business.com, so cybersecurityforbusiness.com. That's certainly where you can get all the information for the book, and there's a way to contact me from there. And uh, my website for my business is uh, tmgr.com. That's tommarygeorgerobert.com, and there there is a way for us uh, to connect there. And, uh, and, of course, I'm in LinkedIn and all sorts of the social networks that we spoke earlier, and we can connect there. And I'm happy to field questions and, uh, and connect with your audience. That would be lots of fun. And I want to say thank you to Chris Boscovides for the interview this morning. It's been an education and for the new book, Cybersecurity Program Development.
for businesses. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me on. It was a real pleasure, and it was a great interview. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.